Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Olesa Pindak, Mind Body Green's Chief Content Officer. Today I'm excited to welcome psychotherapist, New York Times bestselling author, columnist, and author of the new book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, Lori Gottlieb, to the Mind Body Green podcast. Lori's path to becoming a therapist was less than traditional as she started her career in TV. When she was an executive on NBC the same year the TV show ER premiered, she found herself fascinated by the real stories she heard from doctors on set and wound up leaving to attend Stanford Medical School. Throughout her career as a medical student, journalist, and ultimately a graduate student in clinical psychology, Lori was driven by understanding people's stories and sharing them so others could connect. Lori, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. So I'm so excited to dive in and talk about what it's really like to be a therapist and some of the juicy details there. But before we start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how this all began? Take us back to your childhood. Tell us what your upbringing was like. I grew up in Los Angeles and um, not in a world where therapists uh, were common, um, even though that's how people think of Los Angeles today. And um, I was kind of sciencey and artsy, both, um, but I never, you know, pursued anything related to psychology. Growing up, I went off to college. I started at Yale and I finished at Stanford. Um, and I came back to Los Angeles and I started working in the entertainment business. So this was not a direct path to becoming a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) It was the most circuitous indirect path possible. (laughs) So tell us how you got from being an executive at NBC to, um, to taking on therapy. Right. So I was working at NBC the year that ER premiered on uh, television. And uh, I was really fascinated by the stories that were coming out of the real ER. We had a consultant on the show who would give us stories from his real life as a doctor. And I would hang out in the emergency room. And at a certain point, he said to me, I think you like it better here than you like your day job. <laughs> it was getting to be a little bit more than research. It was It was a little more than research, except I kept calling it that because I, I didn't think that I would leave my job. Um, but, you know, and I was 27 by the time that happened. And I didn't think I could still go to medical school. And again, it was something I'd never considered. But um, I ended up becoming really obsessed with these real life stories. At, at the network, we were telling fictional stories. And they were really interesting. They were about the human condition. But it was a different thing to see the real stories play out. And so I went up to medical school at Stanford. And um, while I was there, um, I started writing. Uh, my first book was published, and I um, I really started writing people's stories. And one thing that was going on was it was the middle of the dot-com boom and, mm-hmm. and right before the bust, actually, and uh, managed care was coming in. There were all these cultural changes happening. And uh, one thing that I really wanted to do as a doctor was have these relationships with patients throughout their lives. And it was seeming less and less likely that the practice of medicine was going to be the way that I had imagined mm-hmm. um, in terms of those relationships. And I got really into journalism. And so I started re- having those those really intense conversations with the people that I was interviewing. And I left medical school 
and I became a journalist. And I was a journalist for 10 years, um, writing books and writing for magazines and newspapers. And I loved it until I had a baby. <laughs> when I really wanted to have verbal adults to talk to during the day. <laughs> Being a journalist, you can you can sit in front of your laptop a lot, but you yeah. don't really see a lot of other people. It can get a little lonely. It can get a little lonely. And so the UPS guy would come and he'd be delivering diapers and all these, you know, you'd be ordering bottles and all these different things. And, uh, you know, I'd try to retain him, you know, with, <laughs> with conversation. I, I would say, you know, how about those diapers? Or how's the weather out there? And he would sort of back away to his big brown truck. <laughs> and, you know, lady, I gotta go. Um, and so I called up the dean at my medical school that I had gone to, and I said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry because I think I would really like that. Mm-hmm. And she sort of laughed at me and said, well, you're welcome to come back, but do you really want to do residency and finish medical school with a baby and a toddler? And um, and she said, you know, you were always interested in these longer relationships, and a lot of psychiatry is medication management. Why don't you... Uh, get a graduate degree in clinical psychology, mm-hmm. and you can do the kind of therapy that you want to do. And it was the best advice that I possibly could have gotten because as a journalist, I was telling other people's stories, but as a therapist, I could actually help people change their stories. Your book is so interestingly structured. Uh, your new book that's out now um, is so interestingly structured in that it has not only stories of composite stories of fictional patients that you have dealt with in the past, but also your own story woven through that. And you talk about how you went to therapy while you were a therapist. What was it that brought you to go from being a therapist to being a patient? I think it's really interesting that we therapists spend a lot of time being therapists, but people don't think about us going to therapy. And um, I went to therapy at that time because uh, the person that I thought I was going to marry broke up with me because he said that he didn't want to live with a kid under his roof for the next 10 years. And I had an eight-year-old. That's kind of a problem. And (laughs) it was kind of shocking because we had, you know, this had never come up between us. And, you know, it wasn't as though my child (laughs) was was a secret in any way. (laughs) Um, and um, And so this sort of shocking news lands me in therapy. Everyone in your story, including yourself, is dealing with something, stress and illness and anxiety and depression and heartache are some of the many themes that come up. What was the larger message that you were trying to convey in weaving all of these stories together? So all of this is nonfiction, and um, the patients that I chose are very different from each other, and I did that intentionally. Um, I wanted people who had different, were different ages, different genders, uh, different presenting issues, different childhoods, different histories, different ways of being in the world. Because I think that one of the themes in the book is that we're more the same than we are different. And even if you don't share this person's situation, I think you will see aspects of yourself in those people. And I think even in my story, the reason that I wanted to show myself in therapy was because I I really felt like I didn't want to be the expert up on high. Um, I wanted to show that I was also very similar to my patients, even though I look very different. So I think that we can all find something about ourselves in other people, and that creates so much empathy in the world, not just in the therapy room, but I think in just the way we move about the world. Let's talk about therapy for a minute. Do you think that everybody should be in therapy? 
I don't think that everybody should be in therapy. I think that therapy is one of the many ways that people can get help if they want to understand themselves better, if they want to understand how they relate to themselves better, if they want to understand how they relate to other people better. Um, it can be incredibly useful and, and life-changing in a lot of ways. But there are so many ways that people can um, be aware and learn about themselves. And it doesn't have to be therapy. But I do think that therapy can be very, very useful. And there are so many ways that people are exploring, expanding their mind and their consciousness and their relationships now through meditation or retreats or all kinds of different modalities. What do you think talk therapy brings to the table that is different from some of the other things? I think that a therapist will hold up a mirror to the patient and it will show them a reflection that they aren't yet seeing. So we all walk around with blind spots. We all, you know, shoot ourselves in the foot repeatedly <laughs> and end up, you know, in these patterns and these struggles. And we end up in the same place and wonder, well, why did that happen? How did I get here again? Mm -hmm. And whether that's the arguments that you have with your partner or whether that's something going on with your career, your children, um, or just your relationship to yourself, you know, the, the self-criticism, the unkindness that, that, those voices in our heads that hold us back. And I think that therapy can say, a lot of times people want to change other people in their lives. And it can say, here's your role. You get to choose how you live your life. And sometimes people feel really trapped by external circumstances. And to say, I want you to look at yourself and I want you to see what your role is in your own life. Are you ever done with therapy? Do you graduate patients? Do you say, okay, our work is done here? Absolutely. I think that there's this misconception about therapy that you come to therapy and you never leave. <laughs> <laughs> you know, once you're there, you're just stuck. <laughs> um, that's not true at all. I, I think people come for many different reasons. And some people come for a very discreet problem, like they're grieving a loss or, you know, they've just had a miscarriage or... There's a problem in their relationship. And other people come because they want to understand themselves in a larger way better. Um, and so it depends on what you're there for, how long you're going to be there. And I always check with people along the way. Have they met their goals or how are we doing? Um, because I, I want people to understand that they can bring up the fact that they want to leave. <laughs> that I think people feel very awkward about that. It's almost like they feel like they'd be breaking up with their therapist. Right. And I want to create a lot of space in the room for people to know that this is their this is their hour, and they can come or not come. You know, it's they they come here at will. <laughs> And what is it that you think finally gets people to therapy? What is it that gets people through the door, gets people to sit down? Is it usually the problem at hand that you wind up tackling? Is it somebody who's said something to them in their own life? Is it of their own free will that they say, I've been thinking about this for a long time, now it's time? What is mm -hmm. it that initially gets people in your door? It varies. I'm always interested when somebody comes in, not just about why they're there, but why now? Mm -hmm. Why this day, this week, this year? did you call me? Because um, sometimes something has been brewing for a while and they didn't. And I, I think it's interesting that we place so much value on our physical health. Like if you're having, you know, this funky feeling in your chest, you're probably going to get it checked out <laughs> as opposed to waiting for a massive coronary. Right. Um, but I think if we have like some things that feels off or something feels not right about our emotional state, we often dismiss it or we pretend it's not there. Mm -hmm. And then we end up having sort of the emotional equivalent of a coronary and people end up in therapy. Yeah. And I think people should come to therapy 
when they're having the emotional chest pain, right? When it's brewing. <laughs> when it's brewing. Because it's, first of all, it's easier to treat mm-hmm. earlier on. Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, why suffer so much? Mm-hmm. So I think when people come in, um, you know, the presenting problem is often just a red herring. It's it's symptomatic of something underneath. And I always say, right. like, I like to listen for the music under the lyrics, that people will tell me a story of why they've come, mm-hmm. but I'm listening for the underlying pattern or struggle that got them into this circumstance in the first place. And yet, what do you think keeps people from coming? What do you think keeps people from going through your door and starting the conversation? So many people think, think are dealing, are struggling, are having that struggle, but because nothing has erupted, because it's not a gigantic problem, they're not coming and seeking out that help. What do you think holds people back? I think that there's still a lot of stigma. I think that people feel very isolated in their circumstance because people don't talk about their struggles enough. You know, Mm -hmm. people post things on Facebook and Instagram, um, and and we know that's not the full story, Mm -hmm. but I think it still seeps into our our ideology around, you know, what are other people going through? I think we're all struggling in such similar ways, um, but nobody's really talking about it. And I think the other thing is we minimize our problems. Mm-hmm. So I think people feel like, well, yeah, I've been sad for the last couple of months, and sometimes I cry at weird times. But, you know, I have a roof over my head and hashtag first world problems. And right. also they can't <laughs> pin it to something. They can't say I'm sad because, mm-hmm. you know, because things look okay in their lives. And mm-hmm. they can't say I'm sad because of X because they have lots of things. And because they can't find a reason, they feel like, you know, there's it's almost like they aren't entitled to their feelings. Mm-hmm. In general, do you think that we as Americans are pretty good about talking about our feelings? Or do you think that we are pretty stiff upper lip? And what do you think the impact of that is? I think that we pretend that we're good at talking about our feelings. I think sometimes people will mistake um, kind of oversharing with real connection so people will maybe tell a lot about themselves, but they're choosing what they're telling. And it feels like it's very intimate, but it's actually kind of fraudulent. Mm. Um, and I think that we're really doing the stiff upper lip with the things that we need to be talking about. And where do you think we are with our conversation about therapy now um, in the world? How do you think things have changed in the past 20, 30 years? I think that people understand more about what therapy is. We're not there yet. Um, I think in the book, what I'm trying to do is demystify the process so people can see what a rich human experience it is. And it's Mm -hmm. not the cliches and the stereotypes that I think people see on TV or in the movies. As you all know, there's a lot of drama around it. (laughs) Right, right. Um, Fictional characters created around therapy. Right, right. And I I think, you know, this this book was actually optioned for uh, television by Eva Longoria and um, Coming full circle. <laughs> right, right. I, I, I hope that what we can do is portray a person who happens to be a therapist mm-hmm. um, and just a person in the world like that, and that happens to be her job, as opposed to whatever people think about what therapists are. You know, we're not we're not the, the sort of removed, distant person, nor are we the train wreck. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's just something to be shown about, you know, a real human character like that. That is two human beings in a room having a conversation Yeah. at the end of the day. Is the story the most important thing in therapy, or is it the way that you tell it? 
whenever people come in, I'm listening not just to the story, but to somebody's flexibility with the story. Who are the major characters and who are the minor <laughs> characters and should those be reversed? Um, you know, who are the villains and who are the heroes? Hmm. Um, we aren't here to blame people. And I think a lot of times people want you to take their position when they come in. So they're telling the story in a particular way. They're kind of, um, you know, narrating the story through hmm. a particular lens. And we all do that. It's very, very normal to do. But I think that I want to help them see some other perspectives. You know, what would the other characters in the story say if I asked them to tell the same story? What would their perspective be? And it really opens up people to other possibilities. It's not that someone who injured you was being mean necessarily. It might be that they saw it very differently mm-hmm. um, or, you, or you're easily injured. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't really know a story until you hear all of the characters' perspectives. Let's talk about some of the basic questions that therapists deal with and the basic things that people are coming to therapy for and talking about. Can we talk about this question of how do I love and be loved and why this is such a common theme that comes up? I think that a lot of people um, don't get that kind of information growing up in the same way. Um, I think that, you know, because we, maybe some people get good role models with their parents, some people don't, but if you don't, um, you know, the culture kind of portrays people as commodities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this infinite choice and you want to maximize your choice and you want to get the best deal. Nobody consciously thinks about it that way. (laughs) But I think that when people are looking for partners that they miss out on, on that let me get to know you a little bit. Let mm-hmm. me get let you know me a little bit. Things move very fast, very quickly. I see a lot of people in their 20s in my practice. And I can tell you that so much of their relationship is happening on text even. <laughs> um, you know, they'll like in the book, there's this woman, Charlotte, and she's, she's putting her thumbs up in the air and she's saying, and then he said, and then I said, and she's doing this with her thumbs. And I realized that she's miming texting. <laughs> and I said, you had that conversation on text? It was a really important conversation. And I said, you know, you can't, you can't really see the other person's face or get read their body language. And she said, oh no, we use emojis. <laughs> and she was not <laughs> kidding, <laughs> right? Um, and so I think that you know, relationally, we're sort of a little bit deprived mm-hmm. in terms of just you know having the experience of of real life relationship and you know breaking up with people and falling in love with people and what does that mean? What does that look like? What does connection look like? So I think a lot of people struggle with that. But I also think that's an age-old question. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, what do we want most in life? You know, to love and be loved. Can you speak to that a little bit? How do I find love? How am I loved? And what are the ways that people are seeking out love in their lives? It's it's a core human need to love and be loved. And I think that a lot of times people are not finding that and they don't understand why. And then they end up in therapy and they start to understand that maybe there are ways that they uh, aren't seeking out the kinds of partners that would give them what they're looking for. Um, and they, they don't understand that it's it has to do with some of their history and that there's this familiarity, that we seek out this familiarity from our history and we don't know that that's kind of running the show behind the scenes. <laughs> and once they start to see that it's not that they can't find love is that they're going about it in a way that isn't helping them. And I think too, they don't know how to love. 
Um, they don't know what that means to be loving, to love another person. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they just didn't get that growing up. And, and also our culture doesn't do a lot to help with that. Our culture kind of gives us a lot of strange messages about what love is and what it means to be loved. So I think it, it takes some understanding, some self-understanding. And then I think people have a lot easier time finding that. So then beyond the understanding, what is the kind of reprogramming to understand what love should look like, to understand what you should be seeking out? How do you start approaching that? I help people to see what patterns they're engaging in. Um, You know, somebody in the book is dealing with, um, she's in her 20s, and she keeps kind of hooking up with these guys, and she wants a relationship. Um, At one point, she even starts hooking up with a guy from the waiting room who has been coming with his girlfriend. Um, And and she doesn't understand why she can't find a guy, but look at who she's choosing. Mm -hmm. It's so blatantly obvious to an outside observer, but of course, we can't see ourselves with that kind of clarity. And, and what she realizes, a lot of times we say, oh, I'm, I'm looking for one thing. I'm looking for this, this person who's, you know, kind and generous and available and present. And yet every single person I pick is not that. But she couldn't see the disconnection between those two things, what she was looking for and what she was actually doing. And it had a lot to do with her father and her mother, and and again, not to blame the parents. We don't we don't go back and and say, look here, let's blame your parents. The only reason that childhood comes up is because it informs the way we act in the present. And if she could see that she was recreating in some ways, we call it repetition compulsion, and and it was a Freudian term, but but it's very useful because sometimes we want to read, try to do the thing that was happening when we were a child so that this time we could have a better outcome. <laughs> Except it never works that way. You actually have to do something completely different to have a different outcome. Right. You can't try to recreate what happened before and say, ah, I'm going to master this and have a better outcome. One of the other questions that you deal with is, how do I like myself better? Which, of course, instead of being a relationship with somebody else, is the first relationship you have, the relationship with yourself. How do you advise people to handle that and to improve their relationship with themselves? A lot of times people aren't even aware of how they treat themselves. And it starts with having some compassion for yourself. And compassion is different from not taking responsibility for yourself. So you can take responsibility for yourself, which you must, (laughs) um, but you can also do it in a kind way. And a lot of times people aren't even conscious of the voices in their heads, the way that the self-critical voice, the judgmental voice. We talk to ourselves in a way we would never talk to someone we cared about. Our friends would leave us if we talked to them <laughs> like that. They'd say, you're a bully. Um, I don't want to be around you. But we're bullies to ourselves in so many ways. And I think that your relationship to yourself influences your relationship with others. If you can have compassion for yourself, you'll have much more compassion for other people. If you feel better about yourself, and that's different from self-esteem, it doesn't mean you go girl, you know, no matter what. It means that you have a realistic view of yourself and you're kind to yourself about it, flaws and all. But people have these ideas in their head like I'm unlovable or nothing will ever work out for me or I'm not talented enough or that I'm not good enough for that. Mm -hmm. And then they don't go after the things that they want. And then they wonder, you know, why don't I have the things that I want in my life? They never even try and they don't realize that they're no one's holding them back but themselves. Is there an exercise that you recommend to start changing 
the way that you're talking to yourself or to at least to notice it? I think the first thing is to notice it. And so what I often have people do is I, I say, I want you to I want you to really pay attention to the voices in your head that, you know, to make the, the unconscious conscious. Um, and they'll start and I ask them to write it down. And they're embarrassed because once they start hearing the voice, they they can't even write it down because they're <laughs> so embarrassed by how they talk to themselves. It's so mean. Um, but I have them do it because I want them to see it. And they come back and then we read it. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I can't believe I say this stuff to myself. It's horrible. Another question. How do I deal with people in my life that I'm having trouble relating to? So not just looking for love, but just people in general that are, we all have those people in our lives that are difficult for us to to talk to, to deal with, to handle, and just become a thorn in our side. How do you recommend that people get around that, that they relate to other people better, even the trickiest people? Well, you can see how I relate to John in the book, who's this very abrasive Hollywood producer <laughs> um, who who comes to see me and doesn't he's appear to be your favorite, <laughs> right? He's he's insulting. He's he's uh, you know entitled. He's very self involved. But we come to see that he uses that. People use their behavior to protect themselves. They do it as a way of coping. And so I think a lot of times we personalize the way people treat us as opposed to thinking, oh, they're they're protecting themselves or they're acting this way because it's serving them somehow. And if we can understand that there's something underneath that for them, like with John, he beca- I don't want to spoil anything, but he mm-hmm. becomes, you know, one of the most likable people in the book. And, you know, you, you realize that there is this, this trauma and this tragedy in his life that informs the way he moves about the world. And so, uh, you know, I think that when we have difficult people in our lives, sometimes we react to them. Mm-hmm. And I say, you know, there's this great quote in the book from Viktor Frankl about between stimulus and response, there is a space. Mm-hmm. And if we can give ourselves that space to decide how we want to respond instead of impulsively responding with that feeling that comes up when someone treats us a certain way, mm-hmm. um, the other person will respond better to us also. Are you able to move through the world seeing that humanity in people, given the, your training? I think so. Um, you know, not all the time. <laughs> <laughs> when someone cuts you off at the light, do you think, That's oh, right. they're just, <laughs> they're just having a, they're, 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 they're trauma. No, no, I don't like it when people cut me off. Um, I get frustrated. But um, but I do. I mean, I think that I think that because I see the full picture, I see, you know, this, this broad spectrum of people. When people come in, it's kind of like there's a snapshot that they're showing me. And usually it's not a great snapshot. It's like the, the one with, like, your eyes are closed. <laughs> Um, because they're in distress. Um, But later I see all these other snapshots, and I see even heroic things happening in the Mm -hmm. therapy room all the time that people don't talk about. I think people think about therapy as like you listen to problems all day. And we also see beauty and heroics, and I, I know I'm sounding almost poetic about it, but, you know, when you see someone who couldn't do something before, all of a sudden do something amazing with his or her child or partner or at work or just personally, um, and you see them, like, do something very concrete that they never would have been able to do before, that's, you know, that's like a little miracle right there. It's probably these small victories, too, that nobody else in life even notices, appreciates, or gives you credit for other than nobody <laughs> your will, Well, nobody will do it, but we don't give ourselves credit for it. Right. I mean, that's what's so interesting is that I see it, and I really have to point it out to people. Look what you did. Yeah. Another topic that comes up a lot in your book is grief and pain and how we deal with grief and pain. 
How do you help? I know this is a huge question and there are so many ways to go through grief and pain, but as a big general theme, how do you advise people to start to deal with those really difficult problems? I think we all experience loss throughout our lives, you know, no matter whether it's, um, you know, something like the loss of a spouse or, you know, someone we love, um, or, you know, just losses in life, you know, things that didn't work out in a certain way. And I think that it's important for people to really be able to sit with their pain. I think that we have very little tolerance for pain and that makes it worse. If you can, if you can sit with your pain and let it be there, it will actually lessen. But I think we try to kind of suppress it. Mm-hmm. And and then it's still there, just percolating under the surface, and it comes out in other behaviors. Whether it's like my colleague calls the internet the uh, the most effective short term non prescription painkiller out there, <laughs> um, you know, and that's one way. You can also drink, you can take drugs, you you know, there are lots of ways that you can you know create drama in your relationships. Those are all distractions, mm-hmm. um, and I I think that there's a misconception about grief that you know there's some you're supposed to get over it at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think loss is loss that they loss stays with us, but it doesn't have to overtake us. It doesn't have to overwhelm us. And it, it cycles back. You know, some days are good and some days are hard. Um, and people need to understand the nature of grief more that you think people think a lot about the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stages of grief, mm-hmm. denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And they think that they're linear and that they're discrete, meaning that they end at a certain point. And Definitely. they kind of, you know circle around and mm-hmm. uh no people definitely expect them to go in a in an order and oh i've gotten through stage well, two and now i'm on to stage exactly, three and, and soon I, I will be done <laughs> exactly and i think people rank their grief too you know like well it was a miscarriage but i didn't lose my 10 year old child so i shouldn't be grieving in the way that i'm grieving um you know it's it's one is is less valid somehow than mm-hmm. the other mm-hmm. uh, it's a breakup but it's not a divorce those kinds of things. Um, and I think that pain is pain. There isn't a hierarchy of pain. There's no hierarchy of grief. How do you know when the way that you're coping with it is enough and a perfectly acceptable way to go through it and when you might need some extra help? I think it's about how functional you are. Do you feel like it's it's um, making it hard for you to function in your normal ways? Most people stay functional but the question is at what level are you functioning are you kind of sleepwalking through your days even though you're getting everything done that you need to get done and you appear to others as you know quote unquote normal um what's going on in terms of your your joy we talk about anhedonia with grief and depression which is the loss of pleasure in the activities that would normally give you pleasure so Mm -hmm. if you normally would take pleasure in certain things and you find yourself either no longer doing them or just kind of feeling numb when you do them Mm -hmm. um, that's a sign that maybe um you know would help to talk to somebody another thing that comes up in the book a lot is change and all of the different changes that people are going through we talked about this a little bit with um grief and pain but also just um change in general how do you think that uh, change is affecting all of our lives and is something that people are constantly having to deal with and how comfortable they are with dealing with it? Um, and how do we get through moments of change? I think change is very hard. When people first come to therapy, often the first thing they want to do is 
get the therapist to help them to change other people in their lives. <laughs> um, and then when they realize well, that, that would be easy. <laughs> right. And then when they realize that, um, you know, they're really going to have to change themselves, um, there's that step. And uh, it's hard because people will tell you they want to change, but they won't actually do it. And so the question is, why not? And the why not has to do with, with change comes loss. And I think people don't realize that because they think it's a positive change. I'm going to make positive change. But sometimes clinging to the familiar is much more comfortable for us. So even if the familiar is unpleasant or downright miserable, um, sometimes it's hard to get out of that because we don't know what the new thing is. And sometimes we're afraid of what the new thing is. Um, There's the uncertainty of it. You know, at least we know the thing that we have love to talk a little bit about what's going on in the world right now and things that seem to be rising. Anxiety, skyrocketing, people dealing with anxiety-related issues. What do you make of this? Why do you think that is? I think that people are so lonely. Um, I think that even when they're surrounded by people, that it's so rare that people will sit in the same room together and have a conversation unmediated by screens or pings or beeps or whatever and just listen to each other and hear each other and that leaves people feeling profoundly lonely so no matter what people come in with i i sense this underlying loneliness in the culture and i think that that leads to a lot of depression and anxiety because as humans we need to connect with other people and I, I talk about at the beginning of the book that we grow in connection with others. And it's very hard to not be in connection with others in that way and to really grow and change. And I think just feel at peace with yourself. Mm-hmm. We, we, aren't meant to be, we aren't meant to be alone in that way. We hear a lot about connecting more. I think we we talk about it a lot at Mind Body Green how it's a big part of what we uh, what we're all about. We're about community and about connection and trying to foster those relationships and those connections. And yet, I think a lot of what's set up in our culture and the way that we connect with each other is through social media. Oh, I'm just going to DM someone, or I'll I'll definitely connect with someone. I'll you know I'll shoot them a message. But instead, what do you f- actually recommend? What do you tell people to do? Do you give them um, prescription, so to speak, to go and have a coffee with a friend. What are the what are the practical techniques for improving connection, improving community, that you that you suggest? It starts at home usually, where they don't even realize that they aren't really communicating with their own family members in this in in, in a connecting way. They're communicating about so and so needs to get picked up at this time, or who's taking the trash out. Logistics. Um, <laughs> um, but but they aren't. You know, so many times couples will be sort of co computing at night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of instead of just having a conversation with each other. And they find that it's been so long that they've actually like gone on a walk and it's just been the two of them and they're just chatting without their phones. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, it starts with, you know, having a culture at home of making sure that, of course, we need technology. Of course, we need our devices. You can't really live in the modern world without them in a practical way. But you also need to make sure that you're intentional about putting them away at certain times and so that you can have these relationships with your family. And then I also think that, um, you know, seeing friends is really important. Um, The time that you spend on social media could actually often be spent having coffee with a friend, having a quick lunch with a friend, going to take a walk with a friend. 
Um, and so I think we don't have the face to face. It's like a, a colleague had called Skype therapy. It's like doing therapy with a condom on because it's not the same energy of sitting in a room together where you're both can hear each other breathe. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, there's a vibe to a, to a space when you're, when you're both sitting there okay. and we need more of that. In the book, you talk about the idea of the psychological immune system in relation to a a patient who's dealing with grief over the loss of a child. Um, This idea was founded, of course, by Daniel Gilbert at Harvard um, and the author of Stumbling on Happiness. But can you talk a little bit about what that means and how we actually need to be building up our psychological immune system? Yeah. So Daniel Gilbert talks about how we're very bad at predicting how a tragic event will impact our future. Um, We think that it would be the end of us um, <laughs> often, or we think that it would be much worse than it is. And what he found is that that actually isn't true because of this psychological immune system, that it kicks in to help us just as when we get, you know, a physical attack to our to our physical immune system, um, all of our white cells, you know, come running. And we have an emotional, a psychological immune system too. So this person in the book is talking about how, you know, just after his child died, um, he was laughing and playing a game and he was like how could I be doing this when I'm in the most intense pain I've ever been in but we can't sustain that kind that level of pain for very long and so we do have this innate way of coping which is that we have to have a break from it we need respite from it it's not even it's not even volitional it just happens and people think oh I'm a terrible person because I'm okay in this situation. I'm not supposed to be okay in for a minute or three minutes or a day. Mm -hmm. And it is okay. And people need to give themselves permission to let their psychological immune system kick in. Is there a way that we can build up our own psychological immune system in the same way that we talk about building up immunity in all other aspects of our, in the physical aspects of our life? Yeah, I think we, you know, one of my colleagues talks about the difference between um, people who are like raw eggs and people who are hard-boiled eggs. And if you <laughs> if you drop a raw egg, you know, something happens to it, um, it cracks open and it's, it's a mess. <laughs> um, but if you drop a hard-boiled egg, it's like it'll get a little dinged up, but it's, it's okay. Mm-hmm. And if you build up your psychological immune system so that you're like a hard-boiled egg, um, you the life's sort of vicissitudes won't impact you in the same way. It'll still hurt. We all we all have pain, um, and so I think part of that is: Do you have a good support system around you? You don't just want to call on your support system when things are down, but you want to have them around you all the time, and you want to be a support system for mm-hmm. somebody else. It feels so good to help other people. It feels so good to get outside of ourselves. And we need to make time for, we spend so much time thinking about the next thing we have to do and I can't add another thing like helping other people. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, it's it's not only a good thing to do, but it's good for you. Um, your, your heart rate goes down. It does build up your psychological immune system. So reaching out to other people, connecting, helping other people, um, reaching out when you need help instead of trying to do everything yourself, all of those things will make you more of a hard-boiled egg (laughs) and that that strengthens your uh, psychological immune system. And it goes back to this idea that we are meant to live in community and we're meant to live in community with other people. Yeah. In your opinion as a therapist, how can we become better friends, partners, and listeners? One of the things that you talk about is the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. Can you tell us a bit about that? 
Right. So idiot compassion is often what we do with our friends. We don't want to rock the boat. We want them to feel supported. So when they tell us about a situation, we back them up. We say, yeah, exactly. That person's a jerk. Or, <laughs> you know, and we just we just take their, their version of the story for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're scared, even if we know that, oh, this is the 10th time that Julie has been in this situation, but I don't want to say anything to her. Mm-hmm. Um, you're your honesty would actually be more helpful than harmful in that situation. But it's tricky because Julie is going to feel very unsupported if you say, (laughs) hey, you know, I've noticed this is the 10th time you've ended up in this situation. I wonder if maybe you tried something different. Um, There are ways to do that. Therapists are very skilled at helping people to see that. And we use what we call wise compassion, which is we might say, hey, let's look at this story from a different angle. Um, Are you curious about X, Y, or Z in this story. And so I think it's really important that if you want to be a good friend, that yes, you want to be supportive and you want to be gentle with your friend, but also if there's something that they're not seeing and they keep, you know, ending up in pain over the same kinds of situations, a good friend does talk to another friend about that kind of thing. And I think sometimes people can be pretty receptive to that when they're hearing it from their therapist, but perhaps less receptive if they're hearing it from a friend and they hear it as, oh, you're just not being supportive. What are the ways to go about having those conversations and to suggest gently that maybe this wouldn't be the the nicest way that somebody's treating you or that perhaps it's a pattern or mm-hmm. are there ways um, tactically as a friend that you can actually have those conversations and be a better friend to somebody by being a little bit more honest and straightforward in a way that they will actually be receptive to it, considering that you're not their therapist and they might not be expecting that from you. Often people uh, don't want to take feedback from their friends or their family members because they feel like their friend or family member has an agenda. And sometimes they do. Um, Sometimes we want to help people in our lives because they're being difficult and it would help our lives (laughs) if they were less difficult. So we do have an agenda. But I think in a circumstance where you're not involved in the story, it's easier to help Mm -hmm. your friend um, because it's cleaner. And you start from a place of, I really love you and I really care about you and I don't want to see you struggle so much. And I might be wrong about this, but I've noticed that You've told me a lot of stories like this, and I hate to see you suffer like this. I wonder if X might be going on, right? Um, And you just wonder. We use that word in therapy a lot. I wonder. I don't know what we would do without the word wonder. (laughs) I wonder if, right? Because it gives the person a little more room before their shame creeps up. Mm -hmm. So many times the reason that we're not receptive to feedback is because we feel shamed by it. We feel like somebody's not going to like us or love us or they're looking down on us when really they love you and they just want to help you. I love that word I notice too. I think that that probably makes people feel really heard and seen in a way that I think people really crave. Yeah. You deal with a lot of heavy topics in your practice, topics of love and pain and death. Are there basic elemental ways that you try to navigate people through the toughest moments in their life? Does everyone need something different or at its core, do all of these problems and all of these people need a basic set of things? I think the basic set of things that people need is they need to feel safe. They need to, they need trust. Um, They want to trust the person that they're talking to in a very deep way because they're being very vulnerable. Um, I think they need to feel understood. 
so many times in couples, when I see couples in therapy, um, somebody will say, he doesn't listen to me or she doesn't listen to me. And I always ask, how well do you listen to him or her, right? If you feel like you're not being heard, ask yourself, how well do I listen? I think in therapy, people really feel heard and understood in a way that sometimes they don't outside of the therapy room. And so when you're dealing with something very hard, you don't necessarily want the other person to solve it, although that would be nice, <laughs> but it's not realistic. Um, but I think you want someone to hear you. And in the outside world, I think sometimes when people are dealing with something very difficult, everyone wants to, you know, understandably make the person feel better. So they offer suggestions or they try to distract them from their pain. Mm -hmm. You know, let's let's go let's go do this thing. <laughs> um, you'll and feel better. <laughs> you'll feel better, right? Um, you no, know, the haircut will not make you feel better. Uh, <laughs> and so I I I think that you know how do you help people through these things? I think you really sit with them in you meet them where they are. And if you can really meet them where they are, they will move. They will move beyond that. But you have to start where they are. And if you don't, they will drag you back to where they are, <laughs> and they won't get any better. We've been talking a lot about human connections and how we're all connected. When a patient comes into your practice, do you feel that every patient is a unique and special flower, and you're trying to figure out exactly all about them and everything that makes them tick? Or is there um, a, a type that you can say, oh, well, you know, every every human deals with a certain set of human experiences, and these are the experiences. And I can start to understand each person by understanding that there are a few set of experiences that we all deal with. I think there are definitely common human experiences and themes that run throughout all the stories that I hear. But I also think each person is unique, and you have to treat each person as different and, um, you know, the way that I'm going to help one person get through a relational difficulty is going to be different from the way I'm going to help a different person. I'll use some of the same uh, beliefs and set of skills, but I also think every person is unique in that way and you have to treat them that way. If you could tell everybody something from your seat as a therapist and let everybody know one thing, what is that one thing that you wish you could tell everybody? I think it would have to do with secrets. I think that, you know, Carl Jung called secrets psychic poison. And, and that's because secrets are so corrosive, but they're also all about shame. And so many of us keep secrets from the world because we're afraid that if we reveal the truth of who we are, that we won't be liked or loved or accepted. Um, and, you know, we keep secrets from the world. We keep secrets from people close to us. We keep secrets from our therapist. We keep secrets <laughs> from ourselves. And I would say that the secrets aren't so scary. That, in fact, it's the secrets, the things that you, you think are so private. Um, I mean, and that's private because I think we do need spaces for our, for our private selves. But the things that you think are so shameful um, are really common human experiences and if you reveal the truth of who you are, people will come toward you, not away from you. Mm -hmm. That that draws people. That's our glue. So um, I would say to people, whatever you think is so unspeakable <laughs> about about your life is that if, you, if there's someone that you trust and that you're holding this thing, you know, inside and it's kind of eating you up, um, I would say it's not so scary and that you might feel a lot better if you give it some air. What gets you excited in the morning? Oh, so many things. I, I, I think I love my job. I love what I do. Um, I love being able to go into the office and 
talk to people about the real things in life um, and see people change and see people, you know, kind of stick their head out from their shells and, <laughs> and um, kind of evolve in those ways. And I also, I love what I do as a writer and, and I get to write about the human condition. So I think that my life is, uh, you know, my, my work is really stimulating. What keeps you up at night? Hmm. Not much. I'm usually <laughs> tired. <laughs> I'm exhausted. Um, what keeps me up at night? I, I, I don't have a good answer for that one. That's amazing. Good sleeping. <laughs> um, Can't get enough of it. <laughs> I love to sleep. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? The things that you're worried about now will be blips on the radar screen of your life. <laughs> and that um, you're, you're too hard on yourself. You care too much about what other people think of you. You're a little bit too afraid in the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that the things that you imagine happening will turn out very differently and that that's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, but that you don't have as much control over the things that you think you do as you do, and yet you have control over so many things that you don't realize you have control over. And you have to tell the difference. And I think it's living life where you can tell the difference between what you do have control over and what you don't have control over. And to really, um, you know, be aware of the things that you can change and also to um, not get so hung up on the things that you can't. Wonderful. Lori, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much. It's been so fun. 